back for Children's Church. For those of you that remain, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. As we're going to continue our series in the book of Hebrews. It's on page 1006 in your pew Bible, or 1193, you have the large print. Hebrews chapter 9, we'll be reading verses 15 through the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. But where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is... He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your sending of your Son. We thank you for your Spirit at work within us. I pray that your Spirit would enable us to understand the sacrifice of your Son to make your word known to us, that we could reflect on the beauty and majesty and glory and mercy of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. If I'm going to go about cleaning up my house, I have basically three options available to me. One, and I've tried this many times, I could get my kids to do it. 
and they're not incapable. They can do a good bit of cleaning up. We've taught them from a pretty young age how to clean up after the messes they make. They at least know how to do it. But if I ask them to do that, the job is not going to be done to my satisfaction. Virtually guaranteed. Second option is I, I could clean it myself. And I am more capable and more experienced. I know what needs to be done. And so if I go about doing it, the job is going to be done much more thoroughly. But if I'm being honest, I'm going to get tired and I'm going to stop well short of it being really clean. The third option is I could hire someone who has all the equipment, who has all the willpower, who has all the motivation, who has all the knowledge, and they could clean my house. And that place is going to be very, very clean, hopefully. Here we have a picture of cleansing, of the one who cleanses more powerfully, more capably than anyone ever could. And if you've been paying attention to our series in the book of Hebrews, you've noticed a lot of the titles have the word superior in them. I did the math. It's 10 of the 17 sermons have had the word superior in them because we're trying to communicate what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate again and again and again. There is no one else. There is nothing else that matches up to the majesty and the power and the mercy and the love and the effectiveness and the salvation of Christ. He is superior. And so in this passage, we see that the only way to adequately deal with sin is through Jesus's sacrificial death. There is nothing else. The only way to adequately deal with sin is through Jesus's sacrificial death. And the first thing we see in this passage is that the sacrifice of Christ was necessary. There's a necessity to Jesus's sacrifice. And he starts using this language of will. But maybe your translation says covenant or testament. The, the Greek it uses all three of those meanings for the same word. And so he talks about how Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And then he launches in almost like a pun, not quite, a little taking a nuance of this word and starts talking about a will and the inheritance that is bought for the people of God. And we, we talk about this sometimes when we think about the, the riches and the blessings that are, are bought for us in Christ. These are all the benefits that flow from his sacrifice. And what, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is, you don't get those unless Christ dies. This covenant, this will, is made for our benefit. But you don't get the benefits of a will if the person it belongs to has not died. And so it is necessary for Christ to die so that we would get those benefits, that we would get his Holy Spirit, that we would get the fruit that comes from him, that we would get provision and resurrection and eternal life. Chiefly, that we would get Christ himself. We don't get those if Christ doesn't die. But Jesus doesn't have any will, because if I have a will and I pass on, my things go to my beneficiaries, my kids, my wife, but they are also going to die. Jesus's will upon his death breaks the power of death 
for those whom it benefits. And so he talks about this will, but, but he, he also relates it to a covenant. It's the same word. And he talks about how these covenants are inaugurated in blood. You see this in Genesis 3, when God kills an animal to cover Adam and Eve. You see this in Genesis 15. We talked about that several weeks ago, where, where God had Abram cut the animals in half, and he walked through them. You see this in Jeremiah 34, where the elders of Israel made a similar covenant that they did not keep. The covenant is established through death. This is the way that covenants are made. And in fact, we see in that picture of Genesis 15, if you remember, Abram and God, this was a covenant between the two of them. And typically both parties would walk through those dead animals as a symbol. This is what is going to fall on our heads if we break the covenant. But Abram falls asleep and God walks through these animals, which prefigures the fact that Jesus is going to take the penalty of breaking the covenant onto himself for the benefit of his people. And so he starts talking about covenants and how, how things needed to be purified with blood as covenants were enacted. And if you go back to Exodus 24, you see uh, some of these kinds of things happening. And you see it from Numbers 10 and Leviticus 16. Hebrews is pulling from all these different sources to, to emphasize the point that blood is necessary to cleanse things, to purify them. In Exodus 24, Moses takes the blood and he throws it on the people and he says, Behold the blood of the covenant. And if you've paid attention, when we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, what is it that Jesus says? This is the new covenant in my blood. It's not the blood of a sacrifice of an animal. This is Jesus' blood. And the Lord's Supper communicates to us the same thing that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was trying to communicate to us, that there is a payment that must be made for sin. In the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, they were looking ahead to what that would be. They were throwing themselves upon the mercy of God. In the New Testament, we know what it is. It is Jesus and his sacrificial death. The key difference between them and us is whose blood. They were looking ahead to the blood of Christ through the blood of animals. We know whose blood it is. But why blood? Why is blood necessary to clean? Leviticus 17 says that the life of the flesh is in the blood and that God gives it to us to make atonement for our souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. When it comes to sin, there is a cost. There's always been a cost. You go back to Genesis and the threat for, for disobeying the commandment about eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was death. You will surely die. There's always a cost to sin. Someone goes to your house and burns it down. And, and even if you forgive them and you don't press charges, I don't know why you would. Maybe it's because you're just so, so taken with Christ's forgiveness. You're trying to forgive in the same way. Someone still has to pay 
for that house to be rebuilt. When you forgive someone who has wronged you, you don't just say, oh, that cost evaporates. What you're doing is saying that the pain and the difficulty and the the conflict and the turmoil and and all that came with the sin, I'm going to take that on myself. I'm not going to put that on the person who wronged me anymore. Sin always has a cost. And the fact that, that sin can only be covered with blood, that it can only be cleansed by death, speaks to how serious it is, how, how significant it is that sin comes into the world, that, that, that we enact it towards each other, that there is such a cost that must be paid for it. And so he says almost everything must be cleansed with blood. And, and we can kind of gloss over that in Christianity. That is not normal language to cleanse things with blood. If I walk in here with a, the gallon of blood and start flicking it on things, we're going to be a little bit upset, right? Sometimes Elizabeth and I will be watching a, an action movie or show and someone just gets obliterated by the hero and I'm like, huh, or I chuckle and she's like watching through hands like this because there's blood everywhere, Her reaction is the right one. There is blood everywhere. This communicates that sin is serious. Sin is a big deal. That the only way to cleanse it is to cover it in blood. Some of you, I don't have to tell you that sin is a big deal. You've been wronged in deep, painful ways. You know that there's a cost to sin. And if you've forgiven, you've known the cost it takes to forgive. But if I'm being honest with myself, and I think I'm not the only one, we often downplay the seriousness of sin. Sometimes we downplay it by working off of relative righteousness. Yeah, yeah, I know I sin, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. My righteousness, comparatively speaking, is pretty good. Maybe we think, well, my, my habits, if I can just figure out the right things to do, that will be enough to handle sin. It's not that big of a deal. I can, I can figure out, as long as I have the right attentions, as long as my heart is in the right place, that'll be enough to cover over sin. Sometimes we just think, well, that's not sinful. That's not wrong. And we try to lower the standard of sin to what we think is appropriate. Sin is a big deal. And sin is a big deal because God is a holy God. And sometimes we think of God as like a, like a, a vampire who can't be in the sunlight. That's how he is with sin. Like, ah, sin, I got to get away from it. That's not how God is with sin. God is a holy God that in his presence, sin is obliterated. And so if he wants to be in the presence of sinful people, sacrifice must be made. But again, sometimes we downplay God's holiness. We just think of him as a bigger version of ourselves, kind of like the, the Greek pantheon. Like you read the stories and you're like, they're just like a big, powerful guy. All the same foibles, all the same foolishness. We can kind of think of God in that way. He just, he's just kind of like a bigger, better version of us. 
Sometimes we can hold him to our standard of good or just or loving. God wouldn't do that because I don't think that is good. I don't think that is just. I don't think that is loving. Sometimes we're confused that he's so angry with sin. Why, God? Why can't you just let this one slide? God is a holy God. And if he is to exist in the presence of his people who have sin in their hearts, I'm talking about you and me, a sacrifice must be made. And so it says it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Not that, not that heaven needed to be cleansed, but if God is going to welcome people with sin into his presence, a way has to be made through blood. And we now have access because of Christ's sacrifice. So we see that Christ's sacrifice is necessary, but these verses also show us the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. That Christ's sacrifice is more than sufficient. We see that it's made on our behalf. This is why Paul can say that for our sake, he that is God made him that is Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's sufficient sacrifice isn't just generally out there, just whoever wants to pick it up can pick it up. He made that sacrifice on our behalf. And to, to demonstrate the sufficiency of this, Hebrews draws these comparisons, as he's done before, as he's going to do again, between the old covenant and the high priest and the sacrifices they were making and the sacrifice of Jesus. The first thing he, he communicates is, is that the high priest had this tabernacle and this, this temple that was beautiful and glorious. But Jesus, Jesus himself enters into heaven. These, these, this temple, this tabernacle were the copies of heavenly things. Jesus enters into heaven himself. And if you go to Revelation chapter 4, you see a picture of the throne room of God. And you see the throne of God. And around it are these seraphim, these angels with faces of these different animals and six wings. And they're singing and they're praising constantly. And around that are, are God's people surrounding the throne and praising him. You compare that to the Old Testament, you had this holy of holies, this mercy seat, this throne where God sat. And on either side was, were copies of a seraphim that surrounded it. And around that was the place where God's people would gather outside of the holy of holies to worship and praise him. It's a copy. It's a good copy. God instituted that copy, but it's not the real thing. Jesus Christ enters into the actual place through his blood and fulfills the promise that God has been making for millennia that he will dwell with his people. So too, the high priest was able to enter the holy place, yes, but with blood not his own. A sacrifice had to be made. That, that itself is a picture of God's grace, that the, the priest did not have to give his own blood to enter, but that an animal was sacrificed in his place so that he could enter into God's presence. Jesus, on the other hand, he enters into the holy place by the power of his own blood. 
and yet defeats death for us and him. And so we can now enter into the holy place, the presence of God, with blood not our own. Similarly, the high priest could only do this once a year. Once a year, he could enter into God's presence. But Jesus, he's always in the presence of God. And we are united to him. As it says in Romans 8, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised. More than that, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And who one day will bring us to himself. The high priest could enter once, but Jesus is always present. Similarly, the high priest had to keep going back. It's not just he only got to, he had to keep. He would go in and sacrifice and come out. Next year, he'd he'd go in and sacrifice and come out. Next year, he'd go in. And it's a good thing that he comes out each time, because if he didn't, that meant he was judged and struck down. And yet Jesus enters once for all. His sacrifice was unlike any priest's. It wasn't necessary from the foundation of the world, as he says. If if Jesus' sacrifice was just like any other priest, he would have had to go in and out and in and out and in and out and in and out from the beginning of time, ever since Adam and Eve fell, because he loved his people and he was sacrificing for them. But his sacrifice is superior. He entered once. He has been offered once. This is part of why one of the problems I see with the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper is there's an idea of that it's a re-offering for our sins because our sins are ongoing and we must re-offer Jesus. But that's not the picture we have here in Hebrews, that Jesus was sacrificed, has been offered once for all. It's not like getting a nice home renovation done at your house. You spend the right amount of money, you get a good contractor, you don't have to deal with any of the headaches, everything's done perfectly, you love it. And then a week goes by, two weeks go by, three weeks go by, and you start to notice a little bit of grime on the tile in the bathroom. There's a little bit of dust is accumulated. Oh, I've got to, I've got to keep this up. It's not like that. It's not that Christ gives us cleanliness and says, but now you better maintain it. You better keep this going. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. It's not Jesus plus reading your Bible cleans you. It's not Jesus plus prayer or church attendance. It's not Jesus plus anything. It is Jesus once for all. Sometimes we try to supplement him. Well, yeah, Jesus is good and all. He cleansed me. He's thankful for that. But I also need to do this if I'm going to flourish and thrive and be who I'm supposed to be. Jesus is sufficient. There's one way to demonstrate the sufficiency of Jesus. When you do a sacrifice, there's basically four parties involved in the sacrifice. There's God the one to whom sacrifice and atonement must be made. There's man, the one who needs atonement, whose sin is keeping a gap between them. There's a priest who administers and mediates that sacrifice. And of course, there's a sacrifice, the animal that is sacrificed. 
But you see here in Jesus, we have God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who came down and became man, who took on flesh the form of a baby, lived a perfect life. He was more human than you and I have ever been and more perfect. God became man. But then we also see that he has the great high priest. We've talked about this again and again. He's the better high priest, the greatest high priest. And he is the perfect sacrifice, more perfect than the most spotless lamb who lived a perfect life so that he could be sacrificed on our behalf. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient because he fulfills every necessary role perfectly. God the Son, who became God the man, to serve as the greatest high priest and the perfect sacrifice on behalf of his people. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. All humans are going to face death. That's, that's what he says. Just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Everyone is going to face death and judgment. Christ faced it and overcame it as an effective sacrifice so that you can face it and overcome it, not on your merits, but on his. He did this at the end of the ages. He's just talking about the last days. There's no more ages after this one. There's no more next step. There's no more bigger plan after this. Jesus once for all sacrificed himself. And he, he reminds us that, that this one who fulfills all the roles of a sacrifice perfectly and sufficiently is returning a second time. It's a reminder that's, that should bring us hope so that we can say with John in the book of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. It's like when I come back from a trip or if I'm being honest, when Elizabeth is gone for 30 minutes and she comes back in and the kids are screaming and running <laughs> They were at the window and they run around to the door. Mom! That's what we're called to because we know how Christ has won for us access to our Heavenly Father. And so we're so eagerly waiting to see Him. That's what we're called to. To be eagerly waiting for the one who sacrificed Himself. This calls us to know Him to pray to him, to, to rejoice with others and tell them about him. But most of all, it invites us to come and to worship at his feet, the sacrifice once for all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, too often we can think lightly the weight of our sin, and as a result, think lightly of the gift of your son and his sacrifice. I pray that that would not be so. I pray that your word and this reminder it gives us of the beauty and the sufficiency and the magnificence and the compassion of Christ's sacrifice would overwhelm our hearts and our minds, that we would bow before you and worship, that we would seek to demonstrate the love that you have shown us in the way we live, that we would love others, reflecting the deep, profound, eternal love you have for your Son 
and share with us. We pray this in his name. Amen.